Well, in Washington, uh, D.C., there's uh, a dramatic memorial to Martin Luther King. And it stands uh, a few hundred feet from the spot where he tried to wake up America by sharing his dream. Uh, in the center of the memorial, there, there stands a statue of King uh, that visitors can walk around. Perhaps you've seen it. And on the low walls around that space, uh, there are a number of uh, his most famous quotes. One says this, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And many people have held on to those words when they've been wronged. As a Christian, Martin Luther King, he campaigned against injustice. And he did that because he believed in a God who was just. And our passage today, it picks up this theme. In it, Jesus reminds us that one day justice will be done and be seen to be done. One day wrongs will be put right. One day God will finally deliver justice. Now, sometimes you and I, we have to search uh, high and low to find the meaning of a Bible passage. It can be a, a challenge, can't it? Why is it here? What is the point of this passage? So what? But we see Jesus' goal in telling this parable in verse 1. It's right up front. We can't miss it. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And this morning, as we begin, I hope you can see just how realistic, how encouraging that is. Jesus knows that those who follow him, uh, ordinary Christians like us, they, we often find prayer difficult, don't we? We often feel like giving up on prayer. And it happens for all kinds of reasons. It happens because of our struggle with sin. It happens because of opposition to our faith. It happens because we live in a culture that's so hostile. It happens sometimes because we live with pain in our bodies, in our minds, pain that leaves us drained completely. And sometimes prayer stops, doesn't it, just because life is so crammed and there never seems to be enough hours in the day and we just collapse into bed at the end of it. And you and I, we need encouragement to pray, don't we, this morning? We can feel starved of encouragement as Christians. And Jesus wants to encourage us this morning. Jesus isn't here to berate us today. Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus wants to help us. Jesus, want, Jesus wants to strengthen us. He wants us to pray. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk through the passage a little bit, try and inhabit it. And then at the end, I want to draw out three applications for our prayer lives. That's just another way of saying this is a three-point sermon with a very long introduction. So there you go. Jesus tells a story. Jesus often did that, didn't he? He, he says there once was a man, and he was a judge in a certain city. He had a position of great authority. He was important. He was the kind of guy who decided people's fate but he was corrupt. He didn't fear God. He wasn't conscious of a higher authority than his own. He didn't respect men. He didn't treat people equally. He didn't treat them with dignity. He was selfish. God had nothing to do with his work. This man, he didn't view it as a way of 
serving others or protecting them. The judgment that he made never affected him. It was just his job. So there was a man. But there was also a woman. And in her culture, the likelihood is she'd probably have married very young. She'd probably have married someone she'd known since nursery. And this is a parable, and we're using our imagination a little bit. We don't know if the marriage was a long and happy one. We don't know if the marriage was a painful and difficult one. Or maybe it was a short and bittersweet one. I like to imagine this woman, um, the, she and her husband announcing their engagement to their friends, their friends no doubt delighted. Uh, I like to imagine her and her husband starting married life, hoping to have a family, enjoying all the good things of life, the little routines of life. I like to imagine them with their whole lives ahead of them. I imagine that they would have thought, well, there'll be challenges in life, won't there? But we'll meet them together. I imagine them wanting to grow old together. But then he dies. Then the husband dies. And if we can use our, continue to use our imagination a little bit, uh, no doubt there would have been the initial wave of grief this woman would have felt, wouldn't there? Uh, like a knife to the heart. Then perhaps times when that grief caught her off guard. Uh, maybe times she started to well up unexpectedly. She woke up in the middle of the night and she felt the cold space next to her in the bed. She heard a joke and she remembered she'd never hear her husband's laugh again, never hold his hand again. And to make matters worse, this woman had an adversary. There was someone in her life who made her life more difficult, someone who compounded her grief, someone who seems to have treated her horribly. Maybe it was a money matter. It's a parable, of course. We don't know. Maybe a debt that someone had refused to pay. Maybe someone had been written out of a will. Whatever it was, this woman in this parable, she is the one who is in the right. She is the one who deserves justice. And yet justice isn't happening. And again and again, this woman finds herself in the same situation. Her life, if you like, is on pause. It's uncertain. She can't get past the situation. And what struck me when I first read this parable is how up-to-date it is. In Luke 18, we are in the 21st century. We are in a world where women are treated badly, where women sometimes have to fight for things that men don't have to fight for. I think we're in the world of uh, Harvey Weinstein, aren't we? Me Too, legal disputes. We're in a world that often feels like a struggle. In Luke 18, we're in a world where people grieve. We're in a world where bureaucracy and procedures and other people often do more harm than good. This is a world marked by frustration, the world of Luke 18. This is a world where people don't get what they deserve. And maybe this morning you feel just like this woman. Maybe this morning you're in a situation that wasn't your own making or your own fault. 
Maybe something happened that you'd never have chosen or expected. And it was terrible. And then life got worse. Life is often like that, isn't it? And one of the, the lessons you and I need to remember is that being a person of faith, being a Christian, trusting Jesus does not prevent that. Following him is not some kind of inoculation against trouble. And that almost goes without saying, but things like that are always worth saying, aren't they? One of the books in the Bible that I appreciate the most is Ecclesiastes. I'm not sure I'm brave enough to uh, do a sermon series on it yet. But the book of Ecclesiastes, it describes all the joys, all the frustrations of living east of Eden. In the words of the author of the book, life often feels like we're chasing after the wind, which uh, feels a bit uh, apt, doesn't it, this week? And the book of Ecclesiastes, it challenges uh, a simplistic spirituality that would say, if you do your bit for God, God will ensure that everything turns out fine for you. But life is more complicated than that, isn't it? Life is often hard. Terrible things happen to Christians. There is a lot of mystery. You and I don't have all the answers, and it's okay to say that. Well, back to the story. The widow is determined again and again and again. She comes, she files her complaint. Here's a woman who won't take no for an answer. Here's a woman who doesn't give up. And I think this morning it teaches us something, doesn't it? Sometimes the impression can be given in certain Christian circles that really godly women are passive. That the ideal Christian woman would never fight for anything, would never want anything. That a woman's place is to cower behind her husband if she has one or keep her mouth shut if she doesn't, to be a kind of doormat. But you read the Bible and you will see countless acts of strength and wisdom and courage and faith by women. You will see women defying the authorities in Exodus chapter 1 and saving lives. You will see women at Christ's cross, at his tomb, sharing the news that he was risen. And so there's never a place, is there, in church for attitudes that demean women, for chauvinism, for men who roll their eyes at a woman like this. Men who would think, there she goes again. No, this widow is someone that you and I this morning, we are to admire her. We are to admire her persistence. We're to admire her commitment to justice. And look at the judge's response to this woman, verse 4. For a while he seems to refuse her. But look what it says. Afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. Now, the idea here, uh, the scholars tell us, uh, the idea here is that if he doesn't give her, in the original language, if he doesn't give her what she wants, he's going to get a black eye. And so eventually, finally, after all the waiting, after all the longing, after all the form filling, 
ask her all the reasoning. Ask her all the disappointments. Ask her all the delays. At long last, the day finally comes when this woman gets what she's owed. And Jesus says, verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. In other words, let him be your teacher. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, the principle here, it is the how much more principle. And it's this, isn't it? If an unrighteous judge is able to deliver justice to a woman he doesn't care about, and if he only does that so she will stop bothering him, well, how much more will God, how much more will God deliver justice to his precious children, his elect? God is saying to us this morning, you can count on it. Now, the challenge, of course, is that we often doubt this, don't we? We often find it so hard to believe. So often our cry is the cry of the psalmist, how long? But friends, one day God will act. One day God will bring relief to his people, to persecuted Christians, to people who have been misunderstood and marginalized and rejected, to Christians who longed for God to act, to people like you, to people like me, that day is coming. And notice that Jesus says, when it happens, it will happen speedily, all of a sudden, quickly, in the blink of an eye, as Paul puts it. This morning, you and I, we need God's help to believe that, don't we? We need to help one another believe it. We need to not let delay cause us to doubt it. If you look at the the very searching question at the end of verse 8, I think the implication in that question is that at the end, faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus will be a minority position. And minority positions are not easy to hold, are they? You and I need one another. We need to remember that one day the judge will return. One day the author will walk onto the stage. One day the curtain will come down. It will be the great day. It will be the terrible day. It will be the wonderful day. It will be the day. But the Christian has nothing to fear on that day. Because when Christ comes, he will come as our deliverer. He will come as our great, our mighty savior. Why will he do that? Because he he himself experienced injustice. Jesus experienced the justice we deserve. All our sins have been paid in full by him. When he comes, he'll come as the bridegroom. He'll come to meet his bride. That's what scripture tells us, isn't it? And you and I this morning, if we're Christians, we're united to Jesus. We've been married to him. But unlike the widow in this parable, nothing can ever separate us from him. 
Paul puts it like this in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's union with Christ. That's what you have this morning if you're a Christian. And the wonder, the mystery of union with Christ is that what happened to Jesus happened to us. When Jesus died, we died. His death was our death. His resurrection has guaranteed our resurrection. Our lives right now as Christians, they're hidden in Jesus. They're hidden in him. We are in him. He is in us. He loved us. He gave himself for us. And we are in a marriage that will never end. And so what I want to do, just to close, I want to quickly apply this parable to our prayer lives. And you've had to wait a while for my three points. Here's the first. I think the first thing this parable teaches us is to pray boldly. Pray boldly. See, this widow, she had the law on her side. I think that's really clear. And she appeals to the law. And in many ways, you and I, were, we're in the same position. God has revealed his truth to us. God has shown his character to us. God has made promises to us that you and I, when we pray, we can pray back to God. And so we as Christians, we can say things like this. Lord, as we pray, Lord, your word tells me you're good. Help me believe that in this terrible situation I'm in. Lord, your word tells me that you are gracious. Please help me believe that as I confess my sin. Lord, you've said that anyone who comes to you will never be driven away. Lord, open the eyes of that the person I love who's still to trust in you. And this is the type of prayer we see all through the Psalms, cries for God to act, cries that are based on who he is, on what he said. And so, friends, this morning we can pray boldly, boldly. But I think this parable also teaches us a second thing. I think it teaches us to pray patiently. See, sometimes uh, God says yes to our prayers, doesn't he? Sometimes he says no. Often, I think more often than not, he says wait. And God knows how best to answer, doesn't he? God often uses delays in our lives. God does that to teach us wisdom and patience. Because you can't learn patience in a hurry, can you? You can't become wise quickly. And there are things that you and I can only learn when we're facing challenges, when we're facing difficulties. One of my favorite books, it's the Screwtape Letters. And uh, in it, C.S. Lewis, he, he writes from the perspective of a senior devil, Screwtape. And he's kind of corresponding with this younger uh, devil called Wormwood. And what he's doing in, in that book is he's giving... Uh, advice on how to trip up 
a new Christian. And interestingly, C.S. Lewis said it was the hardest book he ever, he ever wrote because he had to kind of get into this kind of anti-God mindset. And yet many people have found it so helpful. At one point, Screwtape said that God, who he calls throughout the book, the enemy, he says that God allows his children to go through valleys. It is during such trough periods, he writes, that it, that is the Christian, is growing into the sort of creature he, that is God, wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those that please him best. Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in peril than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. See, friends, God sees our lives from a different perspective to us. Sometimes we get a hint of this. Sometimes we look back and we remember things that we prayed for. And we're very glad, aren't we, that God didn't give us those things. And that doesn't make it easy. But as someone once put it, God knows what he's about. God knows what he's about. And that means we can trust him. Pray, pray boldly. Pray patiently. Lastly, I think this parable teaches us to pray hopefully. Hopefully. I mentioned at the start that, that quote from Martin Luther King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that is something, justice is something that many people long for in our culture, isn't it? We care about those in need. We care about people who, who've been abused or wronged. But without God, without a judge, there is absolutely no reason at all why true and lasting justice would come. Take God out of the picture, and there is absolutely no foundation to say that we are living in a moral universe. See, people have great faith, don't they? They say, well, things will just, things will get better. Things will progress. How do you know that if you're not a Christian? On what basis can you say that? Who will decide when justice comes? When will that justice come? How will it come? People say everything's going to work out in the end. Really? And one of the things we need to see is the emptiness of life without the reality of God's judgment. If we came from nothing, and if you and I this morning, if we are just cruising to oblivion, then nothing matters in between. Nothing. And sometimes what we need to do is point that out to our atheist friends. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you need to wrestle with that. But friends, we have grounds for real hope, for solid hope. What does the Bible teach? Christ has died, Christ has risen, 
and Christ will come again. Will come again. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, he will. He will, won't he? Dunkirk is one of my uh, favorite films of the last few years. It tells the story of British troops stranded on the beaches of Normandy. They're backed into a corner. They've got no chance of escape. Uh, All their hope seems completely lost. And in one of the most moving scenes in the film, Kenneth Branagh, his character, suddenly spots something on the horizon. He picks up his binoculars. And the way they shoot this part of the film, the, the camera stays focused on his face. And it stays focused on his face as he breaks into a smile. Tears start to well up in his eyes. And a friend says to him, what do you see? And after a long pause, he simply says, home. Home. A huge number of civilian boats are on their way. The cheers from the men are deafening. Rescue is coming. Well, how much more with us? Friends, Christ will return. One day justice will be done. And one day you and I, we will see our bridegroom. The prophet Isaiah describes that day, that future. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice in our salvation. Well, let's pray together.